We are beginning a new study today, and I am extremely excited about it. I know that I do not appear very excited. Sickness this week has left me such that I am not myself, and uh, my enthusiasm seems to be waning, but it is not. It's just that my body is uh, weak. I was in a place of business in town yesterday and started to leave and I said something about that I had been terribly sick this week. The gentleman that owned the place said, yeah, he said, I've never seen you like this. (laughs) And I took that as a compliment, whether it was meant or not. But uh, so in spite of how I may appear, I am really excited to do this study. I have put in your book, uh, your bulletin, the title of the entire series, the overall title of the class will be These Are They, which is John chapter 5, verse 39. And uh, as far as I know, I don't intend naming the lectures. I'm just going to, uh, you know, lecture one, two, three, four, whatever. I may give some names along the way. But uh, the series is about uh, these are they. And this is going to be a training class. Now, by that I mean it to be solid teaching for the discipline of the saint's mind. So I want you to adopt the posture of a student. This is not uh, a sermon series, and certainly we can make no comparison between anything that we intend to do between that and the works of the immortal Bunyan, whose work we've just finished, the second part of the Pilgrim's Progress. I certainly have no thought of making any comparison between a study that I do and the value, the value of studying, uh, Bunyan's writings. Please let me just give that caveat, uh, up front. Uh, I listened this week to a lecture, tremendous lecture. I strongly, strongly recommend it, uh, to all of you, not just theology students, D.A. Carson. Uh, and in, in, uh, among other, many other things, D.A. Carson, uh, delivering these lectures in, uh, 2019, he said, and I quote, theology is. Now, of course, over the years, I don't even know how many theology books I've read, and some of them reread and reread. And I've heard a lot of definitions, but I love this. He said, theology is disciplined discourse about God. And of course, the, the operative word there is the word disciplined. Anybody can have discourse about God or thoughts about God, but uh, theology proper is is disciplined discourse about God. 
in the pursuit of this class, and it will, I will begin to unfold uh, somewhere along the way here, uh, what we intend doing. Uh, but uh, we came across, Teresa came across, well actually, she, I try to listen to some, I don't get to listen to all, she listens to all the lectures that our students uh, listen to before they get to them. She's well ahead of them in listening to the lectures. There was a, a lecture, uh, I think, by David Jackman. Is that correct? David Jackman lecturing in the 19, uh, sorry, in the uh, 1990s, somewhere in England. He has a, he has a series of lectures, eight lectures called a bird's eye view. And those of you who are taking those courses, you will already be familiar with that. He made comment and uh, taught from the the study that we're going to do, material that we're going to be using. That was not his. He had his own material and taught his own lectures. But he was lecturing from, as an overall thing, the uh, the what's called the Goldsworthy Trilogy. That's this book right here. And uh, uh, I, of course, you know, uh, with the cooperation of Brother John, the deacon, we uh, purchased one of these for everyone in the congregation. So you have your own copy. Now, this is not the book. You students, this is not the book that was given to you for your lectures from David Jackman, but this is the book from which David Jackman was lecturing to create those lectures. Uh, Taz, if you will, hand out those books. And I got one for every uh, reading adult. Uh, I think I got one for it. See how they go. She has hers. I have mine. Uh, Goldsworthy. I, I suppose it's pronounced Graham. Is it G R A E M E? Is that Graham? Graham Goldsworthy. Now, those of you that are bibliologists, book worshippers, <laughs> please resist the temptation to read anything yet. Just hold on to the book and let me talk to you. <laughs> No, Brother John's going into DTs. He can't open it. He'll he'll probably fall out in the floor back there. I mean, you'll hear him. Uh, let me just give you a quick a quick bio on Graham. Uh, there should be one for you and one for Little Man, I think. Of course, there should be two. Are there two left over there? Yeah, those aren't extra. Those go to uh, Julie and Ian. So you have your own book. Let me talk to you about Graham Goldsworthy. This fellow was born in 1934. 1934. So it's not an ancient writing. He was an Australian evangelical Anglican. Evangelical Anglican. He got his master's degree from Cambridge in England. He got a master's and a PhD from Union Presbyterian Seminary in Richmond, Virginia. And you can hear him 
on YouTube, uh, and I strongly recommend it. I recommend you listen to this man. Just put a face to this name on YouTube. There is a there is a lecture called Biblical Theology, where he takes up Ephesians one nine and ten, and this man uh, is is on that lecture. If you want to look that up, uh, so that's who this is, and that's how it came about that I came in possession of this book. I, I had her, she recommended it from the, the lectures that she listened to, and so I asked her to get us a copy of it, and she did, and I started reading it immediately, and I read, I think I read halfway through it before I even uh, started to look at it for us for a class. Nothing novel, nothing profound here, but the, the the timeliness of its content is critical. Listen, you can look with me in the preface. Uh, you can open the book now, John, and take a deep breath. Uh, in, the, in the preface, he tells where this came from. Listen to what he says. This book has grown out of a deep concern for the recovery, recovery, of the Old Testament as part of the Christian Bible. It is indisputable that even evangelical Christians do not, uh, demonstrate a neglect of and an ignorance toward the first three quarters of the Bible. We need not reflect here on the cause of this problem but that it is a problem hardly needs to be stated. Now, I don't think there's anyone here would disagree with that. We are living in a day in which there is a an appalling neglect of the Old Testament among saints and certainly in uh, pulpit in pulpit ministry. Now, we could and we will not, we could get into, and he did not hear, he says he would not do that. We could get into lengthy discussions and they would all be interesting as to how we got there, how we got to this place where there's such a gross neglect of the Old Testament in Christendom today. But, we're we're not going to do that. I am, however, going to read you uh, one of the things I've come across is uh, recently, and uh, I meant to bring McEwen. I suppose it's pronounced McEwen. I've seen his name actually on the internet uh, written different ways, spelled differently. M-C-E-W-E-N. Uh, He's Scottish. Uh, but the original spelling was M with the uh, apostrophe up top. M-E-W-E-N. Uh, but I think it was pronounced McEwen, best I can 
find out. He did a work on the types in the Old Testament. Now, McEwen is a very interesting uh, fellow. He's a Scottish, and uh, this work was actually published in 1840. I have it is available in reprint. I meant to bring my reprint and I failed to. I apologize, but there, there. This work is available in a reprint, and the reprint copy I got, I really wanted you to see it. It's marvelous. It's a, it's actually a facsimile reproduction, right? And it is from the uh, the uh, Harvard uh, Library. Uh, theological Library, Harvard Theological Library stamp is in the front of of the uh, the reproduction that is out there available. My wife found me this one, this original in uh, where was it? Wales, somewhere in Wales. She found this original one uh, for me. Now, I already had the the copy, but uh, she found the original, and I'm so very glad because there was. Uh, uh, the, there is content here, even though the other one is a facsimile reproduction. It's not a redo. It's a reproduction, but it was a reproduction of a later book, a later edition. And it was, it did not have, this one has in the front of it an introductory essay by another Scottish gentleman called McNeil. And, uh, McNeil had, in 1840, had these, uh, this to say in his introduction to McEwen's work on the types in the Old Testament. McNeil had this to say, and I wanted you to hear it. He said, the volume of the book of Moses in its connection with the gospel of Christ has been very appropriately compared to a watchmaker's board. Now, this is a place I don't know if you've ever watched. Teresa and I watched the documentary a couple of times about uh, modern-day watch. There are people who still make watches. And I mean, they machine every tiny gear, every bushing, every tiny part that goes into the making of a watch. There are men who still do that today. It is an astounding, skilled craft, men who make watches. And and the watchmaker has this board that once they have milled and machined each of these tiny springs, gears, bushings, balls, whatever, every part, they have it all laid out on this watchmaker's board. And then they, of course, assemble it. And, and uh, that's the picture that that McNeil is picking up here. He says the quote volume of the book of Moses in its connection with the gospel of Christ has been very appropriately compared to a watchmaker's board on which lie scattered chains and springs and pivots and wheels and cylinders and cases and dials and plates and hands all separate and already made according to the purpose and by the skill of the workman who has planned their combined movement. 
the gospel has brought to light, as brought to light. So he says the gospel as it, as it exists under the writings of Moses, the gospel is like this watchmaker's table with all these parts on it. Then the gospel as brought to light in the New Testament is the watch completed with every chain and spring and pivot and wheel in its proper place, exhibiting the manifold wisdom of the everlasting God who knoweth the end from the beginning and calls things that are not as yet as though they were. So he makes that, that beautiful illustration of the watchmaker is the Old Testament. That's the Old Testament. There's all the components. There's all the parts perfectly designed by the watchmaker. We come to the New Testament and find the gospel. And we find that gospel. There's the watch completed. He said, it is delightful in the contemplation of the communion of the saints to reflect that since the fall of man in Adam, there has been but one religion in the world. That however differing in its outward ordinances appointed by God, or in the degrees of clearness with which the will of God was revealed, the religion of Abel and Enoch before the flood, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob before the law, of Moses, David, Hezekiah, and Daniel under the law, of Peter and Paul, James and John at the outset of the gospel, of Luther, Latimer, Leighton, Augustine under the progress of the gospel, was essentially and fundamentally the same. Now, that statement alone, there was a time in my life I would have seriously gone toe-to-toe with you on that statement. I would have said there there is no gospel in the Old Testament. The gospel is a New Testament phenomenon. Uh, it's ludicrous to talk about the gospel in the Old Testament, etc. But that is exactly what McNeil is saying. They were essentially the gospel there and the gospel here is essentially and fundamentally the same. They were all wrecked in the same earthen vessel, Adam. They were all rescued from the deep waters in the same divine lifeboat, Jesus Christ. They were quickened into spiritual life by the same power, pardoned by the same sacrifice, Justified by the same righteousness, sanctified by the same indwelling Holy Spirit, made partakers of the same blessedness and heirs through hope of the same glorious kingdom when our Lord and their Lord, the head of the whole body, shall come in his glory with his saints. Hallelujah. All the same, says McNeil. And, of course, that is in his introduction to the work of McEwen showing all the types. And I'm, I'm about halfway through this book.
showing the types of the Old Testament and how all those types pointed to Christ. And that is uh, that is exactly what we intend to do and to take up. This week, and I already had all my preparations for this class, but this week my wife received the magazine, The Classical Teacher, which we always, this is, I wait for this <laughs> every month. I look really forward to this coming. Tremendous articles in it. <clears throat> and uh, just to give you a taste of, uh, of course, with classical education, this is a, a given. But uh, for most of us who were not taught classically, uh, some of these things need to, we need a little jarring of our thinking and our mind and our memory. Uh, there's a wonderful article. I really spent some time just looking at the picture, meditating. Uh, an article by Dr. T.D. Shepler called The Mind of a Gentleman. And that picture just conjures I, I just sit and meditate. <laughs> I just try to get into his head. What is he? What is he thinking? And the article is about the mind of a gentleman that is in its proper and more, more scholastic, uh, expression of, of a gentleman. I want you to hear this. He said in his book, the idea of the university. I don't know if you've ever heard of that book, Brother John. John Henry Newman wrote a book called The Idea of the University. John Henry Newman argues that the goal of education in a university should be to cultivate a, quote, liberal, and that's using it in its classical definition, to cultivate a liberal type of mind. In Latin, liber means a free man as opposed to a slave. So a liberal education technically referred to a man having an education that would liberate him to think Broadly, and and he would be free to do that, be a free man, as opposed to a slave. And the education appropriate for such man is an education called liberal arts. In this way, students might be lured away from the servile and toward the gentleman. Newman uses the term gentleman in the way it was commonly used in his time to refer to the free man who uses his freedom wisely by becoming a man of broad culture, taste, and learning. An educated gentleman should live with a confident bearing 
toward the world. Now, I hope as I'm reading these words, you're conjuring up in your mind some images, maybe images of your past or people in your present who are living in this slavish environment. A broad-thinking man is a man that will be free, free to think, free to think in various directions. Ignorant people are, what is our term? Narrow-minded. <laughs> narrow-minded. That means their mind is running in a very narrow channel. An educated gentleman should live with a confident bearing toward the world. He should be able to look upon the variety of human life and the vastness of the cosmos with an eye that takes it all in. He may not be an expert, but he knows how to think about any of the things he sees. And more importantly, he knows, he knows how to think about them all together as a unified whole. Constricted thinking keeps you from being able to see things in their broader context. And of course, it's very unrealistic. The servile man, by contrast, sits with hunched shoulders and head down, toiling at his one assigned task. Being a slave to a particular kind of work, he will naturally become knowledgeable, knowledgeable about one very specific subject. <laughs> I think I know some of these people. <laughs> I think I've been one of these people before. Get very knowledgeable about one thing. And that's it. That's it. He knows exactly how to stack widget A on top of widget B. And he can tell you anything you want to know about these two specific widgets, but nothing else. <laughs> he does not share the gentleman's flexibility and liberality in mind, capable of approaching the whole of life Capable of approaching the whole of life with intelligence and dignity. That's what ignorance does. It locks you out of the rest of the world and into your widgets. Later he says, there are many who go to work in a suit and tie who think in exactly the same cramped mode that Newman describes. This kind of person who only ever evaluates knowledge in terms of its use to his specific widgets, whether they be paper or spreadsheets, widget factory, be a tiny cubicle or a corner office. 
Conversely, there are blue-collar workers who have cultivated their whole soul beyond their work through wide reading and deep reflection. So in other words, he's saying this is not a this is not an e economic situation. It's not a question of upper crust, lower crust. It's not a question of the haves and the have-nots. It's not a question of the affluent families or being from a poor family. This is about the mind. This is about the mind. I listened to another lecture uh, this week from, uh, what's the doctor's name, the lady that's doing your music courses? Dr. Carroll, there they affectionately call her Dr. Carroll. And she was on a uh, podcast. And on the podcast, they were talk she was talking about in her youth that all they had was just a little country local library. That was her whole access to the world of knowledge was in that little library. And she would just go down there and she she expressed it exactly the same way I would have expressed it. My local library there in Abbeville, South Carolina, it, she said it was it was a door, it was a gateway to the whole world. I could go in there and get a book, and I could travel to anywhere in the world and learn all about those people. And she got all excited talking about it. And I understood that. I understood what she was saying. I did the same thing. Only I had access to Erskine College Library. <laughs> and a lot of the books there went back to the 1700s, 1600s. And uh, I would go to due west uh, to Erskine and go to the library and just bury myself in there. And you could go away to anywhere and that's what that's what uh that that's the point that uh Dr. Scheffler is trying to make in this in this article and of course he goes on and talks about education and classical education and and what it does and how it opens these doors etc but the point of it is that they are uh that the mind of man now we understand that our minds are to be guided by the scriptures. We understand that. We're not making a case for broad and indiscriminate, undisciplined thinking. We're not making a case for that. We're making a case for disciplined, and that was, that was the specific definition D.A. Carson gave it. Theology, he said, is disciplined discourse about God. And so it is a case that we're making for disciplined discourse, disciplined thinking. But the mind, the mind, the mind. How many of you, I know you have, have you seen, uh, surely you've seen either a movie or a video or something on these people that they call savants. I, I'm talking about a true savant. It is astounding. I mean, just watching them, it, it is astounding. And every time you see that, what does it make you think, of course, of what the human mind is actually capable of? And the fall has robbed us 
the fall of Adam, our corrupt nature that we inherit has robbed us and we have a darkened mind because of our sin nature. But the work of the scripture is to blow, as it were, blow the, blow the fog away, blow the clouds away, and give clarity to thought. Biblical, godly clarity. And we do that, of course, by study. And what we're going to do, the specific, I said all of that as kind of encapsulating several different thoughts here. I'm encapsulating several different thoughts, but I want them, I'm bringing them to, to this, that we are, as he said here, we are in a generation indisputable, he said, that even evangelical Christians demonstrate a neglect of and an ignorance toward the first three quarters of the Bible. Now, a lot of preachers, and I've heard some here very recently, will take an Old Testament text, and they especially love the stories, right? We all love the stories. From childhood, we love the stories. I mean, Goliath, you know, little David goes out and slays this giant. I mean, these are incredible stories. And we love Jonah, is swallowed by this fish. It's three days, three nights down there in the ocean and it spits him out. And I mean, these are incredible stories and we love the stories. And a lot of people will take those Old Testament stories, but even those are not contextualized and they're not seeing the broader redemptive intent which brings me full circle back around to my text. These are they, said the Lord, that are written me. All of that Old Testament history, stories, events, poetry, etc., etc., are uh, intended to reveal Christ. They're all about Christ. The, the book, the Bible is about Christ. It's never meant, you've heard me say it before, it's not meant to be first and foremost a history, not meant to be first and foremost a book on economic success or a book on science or a book on flora or anything else you can name. Its sole dynamic is to reveal Christ. From beginning to end. And unfortunately, we're in a day when three, you know, two thirds of that, the whole Old Testament has been discarded as being more or less irrelevant for us. After all, we're not under the law, right? So we don't need to know anything about the law. No. We're under Christ and the book is about Christ. And that's what I want us to follow with Graham Goldsworthy as he unfolds to us this continuity, this continuity and 
and the unfolding revelation, how that it maintains this continuity of revealing Christ. That's what his lectures were about. And we're just simply going to go through. I'm not going to buy, try to be creative or, or impress anything, anyone. We're going to go through, and I'm just going to cherry pick, so to speak, uh, some of the highlights of the lectures that he brought to, to bring to us not only a better understanding of this dilemma that we're in, but the answer to the dilemma, which is the proper understanding of our relationship to the Old Testament. And uh, by the way, uh, there was a, uh, there was a, I have notes somewhere, uh, maybe I'll bring them next week. Uh, there is a wonderful lecture on YouTube of D.A. Carson called Biblical Theology and Preaching. And in it, he outlines the great distinction between biblical theology and systematic theology and and he outlines the use of that. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll 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 get to that. I'll get to that at some point or other. But uh, the subject of biblical theology versus systematic theology. Now, like I say, this is going to be a class. I hope that you'll be prepared to maybe take some notes in your book. That's why I got every one of you your own book. The church paid for these, of course. You paid for these. You bought your own books, just didn't know it. Uh, but uh, you can take notes in the book or somewhere. I do want us to see this wonderful treatment, uh, Goalsworthy. And it's called a trilogy because he actually did this study in three books. He wrote originally three books. They have put them all together under one cover. So you have all three books. Here in this one book. And that's why it's called the trilogy. Okay, so that's where we're going, God willing, and that's what we're going to do. Do we have any questions or additional comments or any contribution anyone can make? As long as it's biblical theology. <laughs> Dr. Carson's lecture, I had struggled all, really all my life with putting words to how to define the difference between biblical theology and systematic theology. Now, I know that there are, I've read all the definitions of both. But really, when you sit down and, and say, okay, draw me the fine line between the two, I had never been able to quite do that. And uh, that single lecture by D.A. Carson uh, was tremendous in sorting that out for me. Uh, if you're, you're students of the school, you don't, uh, you're not required to have it, but I would strongly recommend you listen to that. It's called D.A. Carson, Biblical Theology and Preaching. And it was done in uh, what country? Some other country. He was invited to bring these lectures uh, to to some group somewhere, and he brought the lectures, and they were recorded, and they're now on YouTube.
All right. Yeah. 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 Well, you might say that his treatment, his three books were his addressing the problem. He did go straight at the business of addressing the problem. Uh, he doesn't in depth deal with the causes as in Dates, names, uh, movements, trends. He doesn't do that. But what he does do in this first chapter, as we will see, when he takes up why read the Old Testament, invariably in the context of that answering that question, he goes to some of the root causes why it isn't being read today. Uh, now again, of course, we all understand John's degree and passion is history. So he would like to trace everything back to, back to its origin, which is totally important. I'm not making any criticism of that. But for the purposes of his book, that was not where he was going. Where he was going was simply to get right into correcting the problem. And... Um, I think that a lecture, John, if you wanted to prepare a lecture on that subject, uh, it would be good for us. My concern is I don't think it could be done in a lecture. It would probably wind up being a book. And, uh, and we obviously we can't get hung up there uh, because I want to address the problem and not the cause. But anyway, uh, that uh, John's right. John's absolutely right. Uh, a treatment of the causes would be very insightful and uh, and helpful. Uh, most of us, because of our time, our location on the timeline, we we inherited it. We weren't part of the mechanisms uh, mechanisms that caused it. We just inherited it, uh, which would make it all the more important. We know where it came from, really. Back up and find out what happened. And maybe John could um, share some of those with us. I don't know how he could do that in one, in one session. So anyway, next week, uh, God willing, we will begin. Now, I'm not, I'm not, I do not want you. Let, please, 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 please hear me. 
I do not want you to read ahead in this. I mean, I'm not, obviously I can't stop you, but I'm saying uh, my purpose for the, in this study is not for you to come out of the end of this thing having read this whole book. That is not my purpose. Like I said to you, I'm going through and I'm cherry picking some things that I think are critical, that are key to us, that are valuable for us as a congregation and our time and place. So I, I would ask you not to read ahead in the book. I will point out readings to you as we go through and you can mark those readings. And then after we've completed whatever pages, you can go back and read them, all the stuff I didn't read, certainly. But again, my purpose is not to get you to read this book. If that was the case, I'd just give you the book and say, here, take that and read it. You know, go thou and be filled. But uh, I'm not interested in that. I actually want to go through the material and talk about it. All right? Please bring your book with you, though, every week or leave it because I will be pointing to readings that are significant for you. You should make notes on them. And then I will be bringing in other readings that are not in this book. All right. Any other questions or thoughts?